Amen. You may be seated. As we begin today, um, we're going to talk about that idea that Natalie just mentioned, that Jesus is a, a God of grace and truth. And what does it look like for us to live lives that emulate that to people who watch? In our series, String of Pearls, we've been continually looking at the way in which Jesus and the book of Mark is constantly referencing the Old Testament. So there are these pearls of wisdom embedded in the Old Testament that Jesus refers to directly or indirectly. So we've been going to the Bible and pulling out pearls. There's going to be several today. I want to pull out several of them and show you where they're going to show up. I'm going to turn this thing on. Um, What we're going to find today is that we're going to make references in the book of Mark to Exodus. There's going to be three references to Exodus. Exodus 7, Exodus 9.22, and Exodus 10. There's also going to be two references to Daniel. We've got the Daniel one here. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. And we're also going to have a reference to Joshua 3, 8. We'll grab one more here. So this many and probably more Old Testament references that are going to be referenced by Jesus in the passage we look at today. And we'll get to those as we get to each one of the chapters, each one of the portions. You know, we're living in interesting times. One of the most interesting things we're living in today is a time of postmodernism where people reject the idea of absolute truth. It's almost witty. It's almost culturally acceptable. Or you're hip if you say, I don't believe in absolute truth. And what is the Christian response to that? Well, if someone says, I don't believe in absolute truth, the first thing we say is, are you absolutely sure? Because we've got one. But more than that, if you just think about it for a moment, there's all kinds of absolute truths. You know, a human being cannot live without a brain. A human being cannot live without a heart or a device operating like a heart. So scientifically and physically, there are absolute truths. There's emotional truths. Human beings, you know, we're not built to live without their needs being met, like the need for affection or the need for attention or the need for comfort or the need to be valued. These are hardwired into us. Socially or, or ethically, there's ethical truths, like killing people for fun is always wrong. Torturing children is always wrong. Killing people without a just cause is always wrong. And there's ramifications of if you hold on to bitterness or envy, there will be ramifications to your physical body as well as your emotional body. And you go on and on and on about truths that exist across all times, all places. You know, when you start talking about truths, the response is usually this. Well, if you believe in being honest and being truthful... Then what if the Nazis came to your house and you're hiding Jews in, in, the, in your closet? Should you be honest with the Nazis? To which the answer is, we always lie to the Nazis. I mean, that's the answer, right? <laughs> but uh, the rabbis in Jesus' day really had thought through these ethical dilemmas. And they thought through a way to process them and deal with them that is very practical. Jesus will often talk about how there are weightier areas of the law. And that you need to weigh the law. He'll say things like, God desires mercy over sacrifice. It's not to say that sacrifice isn't important. It's really important. But he just says mercy outweighs sacrifice. So when you're making a decision, make sure you weigh these decisions properly. If you had a child and his eighth day after his birth was on the Sabbath, the scriptures told you to sacrifice, I'm sorry, to circumcise your child on the eighth day, but also not to do any work on the Sabbath. So the rabbis would say, well, the weightier law of these two is the circumcision. So go ahead and circumcise on the eighth day. Not the Sabbath is important. It doesn't weigh as much. Even today, nurses and doctors work on the Sabbath, even though it's a day of rest. Because one of the weightiest laws 
is the law that you are to protect life. As a nurse, as a doctor, the desire to maybe save a life that day outweighs the Sabbath. So this became a very practical term. Even in the Bible, you see the midwives, as the Egyptians come to kill off the babies, the midwives lie to the Egyptians in order to protect life. Rahab does that with the spies in the book of Joshua. So you'll see Jesus. He's going to demonstrate in the chapter we look at today many, many times. But they use terms like light versus heavy, the weightier areas of the law in processing these dilemmas. I want to call it thinking with both hands. When we come to ethical dilemmas, we're often saying, well, well, I got to think about this, but I also need to think about that. Well, I got to process this, but I need to keep in mind that we think with both hands. Jesus is going to model it. He's going to demonstrate it and he's going to give us examples of it. And I think what I love about this is it's such a balanced approach to ethical dilemmas. It's very practical. It shows us that we need a thinking faith and it shows us a way to deal with the complexity of decisions without dropping into situational ethics. Let's begin. Jesus explains how to think with both hands. Now it happened that he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. Dun, 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 dun. And as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain on the Sabbath. The Pharisees said to him, look, look, do you not see what's happening, Jesus? Why do they, your disciples, do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? You got the Sabbath, you got them eating. What kind of a rabbi are you? which Jesus immediately appeals to the scripture. He says, have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry? So his disciples must have been very famished because he references a principle that their need and their hungry, their starving, is going to outweigh the principle of the Sabbath. He and those who were with him. How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar the high priest and he ate the showbread. Again, the showbread was very sacred. So much so that it was not lawful to eat it except for the priests. And not only did David eat it, he gave some of that to those who were with him. It's a case study, he says. Hey, you're worried about this situation? Let me give you a case study. When David was being chased up and down the fields by Saul, his men were starving to death, just trying to stay alive. They came to the temple. There was showbread there, but it was sacred showbread. Should they have starved to death or eaten the sacred bread? Which weighed more in that situation? And then he gives us a principle. He says, your policies and your practices in life should always be an outgrowth of the principle. And usually that's how they start. But at some point, usually your policies and and practices become more important than the principle. And that's where things get upside down. So Jesus references the principle. Here's the principle. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The laws serve us. We don't serve them. No, it's God said the Sabbath is important. It is sacred. God hardwired us to need rest, to reconnect with the idea of who our father is, to reconnect with who our creator is. God designed us that way. But know that the laws were designed to serve us. And by the way, he mentions, and this just begins a whole slew of references to his deity in this chapter. I, the son of man, keep that phrase in mind. We're going to dig into that in the end of the verse today. I, the son of man, am Lord of the Sabbath. So even if this principle is made just for men, I am actually Lord of the Sabbath itself. So Jesus extracts this principle. He says the spirit of the law trumps the letter of the law. 
And so if you, if you have a decision to make between the, the policies and practices and the principle, always go with the principle. I'll give you an example. I don't know if you've ever seen a Galileo thermometer before. It's really interesting. It tells you the temperature because these different colors have different liquids with different densities. And so based on the temperature of the water, I can tell you that it's about 72 degrees in here. And it's not so hot that the 68 degree. When it comes to ethical dilemmas or situations in life, all the easy questions have been answered. And that's the truth. All the easy ones have been answered. Whether it's a family decision, whether it's a business decision, you almost always have a whole slew of, of principles, biblical principles, honest principles, good principles that are at work. And so what happens is that many of us come to a situation, and first of all, we need to input into our lives, what are the different things the Scripture says about the situation? And until we have those different reference points in our head, we're not going to be making wise decisions. One of the reasons God wants us to have input into his word is so when we come to a dilemma, we know the different types of things God says about this. And then as we begin to process it, we begin to look at, all right, well, that's important, and that's important, and that's important. As I go to make the decision, I begin to ask myself, what are the weightiest principles here? What are the weightiest principles God has that come to bear in the situation? Because in almost every situation, there's a lot of good, vital principles and priorities in place. So what Jesus would do is that he would say the weightiest go first. These are the weightiest principles that need to drive what we're doing. And then this one, then this one, then this one, then this one. Now here's where that becomes both humorous and practical. In the Bible, it says things that seem contradictory. Like, be holy as I am holy. Yeah, I want to do that. And then it says, we all fall short of the glory of God. Oh. So pursue holiness, but know you're never going to be holy. Well, talk about a recipe for disaster, right? So you either go, I might as well just give up and not even pursue holiness, because why pursue something you can't get to? Or you say, I'm going to try really hard, and you realize you're never going to get there this side of heaven, and you get burnt out trying. How do you do both? You've got to think with both hands. I want to pursue the holiness of God because he has made me holy. And yet I know that his grace covers the fact that I'll never be fully holy this side of heaven. But for Christ and what he's done for me. You're thinking with both hands. There was a rabbi. His name was Rabbi Taluska. He was giving advice to a man who was struggling with smoking. He said, I keep telling God I want to break the habit. I keep trying to stop. I keep making promises. I just can't go cold turkey. The rabbi turned to him and said, well, why don't you try to smoke less? Smoke less? My body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. I either need to smoke or not smoke. Smoke less. I'll give you another example from New York Times several years ago. New York Post, rather. There's a high school, a Hebrew girls' school up in New York. And they say they are helping students deal with gossip one hour at a time was the name of the article. At 11.15 every day, a young lady gets on the intercom and says, all right, it's 11.15. Just remember that for the next hour, we're going to stop gossiping about one another. So from 11.15 to 12.15, they do everything they can to try and encourage one another, affirm one another, and not gossip about one another. At 12.16, do whatever you want, right? No. But, you, you know, if gossip is wrong, it's wrong. Why would you just not eliminate completely? To which they said, if you can begin to sample well, this is what it looks like to pursue holiness. Yeah, you're not going to do it the rest of the time. But as you see that I'm pursuing, you say, why would I not want to do this more? It's just thinking with both hands. Sure, you should eliminate gossip completely, but shouldn't you at least take steps toward holiness? That's what they're implementing there. 
Well, let me jump into um, the next part. Jesus models how this works. He entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. So he just ate on the Sabbath. Now he's about to heal on the Sabbath. So they watched him closely, they being the Pharisees, whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. He said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. And he said to them, I love this. Notice how Jesus, in the midst of a dilemma of practice and policy, he always drives to the principle. I can't believe I think Jesus is about to heal somebody in the Sabbath. The Sabbath, we've got some rules, we've got some policies, we've got some practices that you're not allowed to heal on the Sabbath. That's work. Jesus eliminates all that conversation. He says, guys, let me ask you a question about the principle. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good? Of course. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do evil? Well, no. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to save a life? Wouldn't that be consistent with God? Or is it lawful on the Sabbath to allow someone to die because you didn't heal them or help them? And they kept silent. And whenever you're, and again, it's hard to put policies and practices in place in, in every area of your life. But to make sure that as you're putting them in place, that they don't override the principle. And so Jesus always goes to the principle. What is the principle God has that drives the situation? It's that the Sabbath was made to put God first. Wouldn't loving people and helping people and protecting people be consistent with the spirit of the Sabbath? And Jesus turns to this man with a withered hand and he says, step forward. Which is first, I think, indirect allusion to the Old Testament. This is the most indirect. Because back in Joshua, if you remember, before the people experienced the miracle of the water in the Jordan River stopping, they had to first step forward into the water, didn't they? In other words, I'm the kind of person who says, God, you, you show me the miracle and then I'll believe. Wouldn't that be nice if every time God showed us a miracle, then we believe? But God always says, no, no, you step into the situation and then I'll provide the miracle. So he turns to this man with a withered hand and says, step forward, step forward and see what God would do. And that's in uh, Joshua chapter 3, verse 8, the first one we referenced today. This idea that until you stand in the Jordan, you don't get a chance to experience the miracle God has for you. But the next phrase he uses is even more key. Now it gets a little more direct. Jesus turns to the man. He could have said, stand up. He could have said, raise your hand. He could have said, he could have said um, put your fingers out so I can heal you. He could say, stop being withered. He could say, you are healed. But he uses a very specific phrase. He says, stretch out your hand. Now, he's ticked off at the Pharisees because they always choose policy and practice over principle. He looked around at them with anger, just angry. He's grieved at the hardness of their heart. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And his hand was restored as whole as no other. Now, this phrase is coming directly out of the Old Testament in Exodus, three different locations. And I'll give you all three of them. Because Jesus is stringing together these pearls to say, God is here. The Son of Man is here. The Son of God is here. The one who stretches out his hand is here. Notice in Exodus chapter 7. The Lord said to Moses, Turn to Aaron and take your rod and stretch out your hand and turn the water into blood. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven and there will be hail in the land of Egypt. Exodus 10. The Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt and there will be locusts. 
Jesus is saying, the power of God is here. The kingdom of God is at work. I am the one who can command the power of God in this moment. And now they're even more so getting angry. This is a claim to be the sent one from God. God himself is the one who stretches out his hand. Well, once you understand that stretch out your hand metaphor is a claim to be God, you understand why they're so ticked off. Because the next response is that the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted to kill him. Why are they so ticked off about somebody who's healing somebody? Well, because Jesus challenged them on their principle. And more importantly, he claimed to be God by using that phrase, stretch out your hand. So what the Pharisees do is they join forces with the Herodians against him on how they might destroy him. So let me talk about the Herodians for a moment. I got a chance to visit one of the villages where the Herodians lived a couple years ago in 2012. They um, had these incredible mosaics. They lived very comfortable lives. They had compromised on principle, compromised on practice, and compromised on policy. They had really gone away from following the way of God. But they said, hey, we're okay with that. We're pro-Herod. And even though Herod is rather diabolical, to give an example, he killed his wife, took her ashes, and spread it on his toast every day to eat it. That's how diabolical Herod was, and they were pro-Herod. But they said, you know, so sink that in for a second. So, but this guy is a horrible man. But he was able to negotiate with the Roman Empire in such a way that the Roman Empire, instead of totally pushing down the, the Jewish people, had a few exceptions they got. For example, instead of sacrificing to Caesar, they could sacrifice for Caesar. Well, that allowed them not to be a rebellion because the Jews were not going to see Caesar as God. So there were a few freedoms that were given, but specifically the Herodians were the upper crust influencer ones. And they said, hey, whatever we compromise is fine because Herod allows us to get our needs met regardless of the consequences to our doctrine or to our practice. Well, one of these places has what's known as the Mona Lisa of the ancient world. This is from a Herodian home. Beautiful mosaic of this young woman. In, in one of their homes. Here are some of the other mosaics that you find in the different areas of the Herodians. Now, one of the things you notice in their mosaics is here on the right is a cenotaur. The Herodians practice synchronicity, meaning they would say, hey, we believe in the God of the Bible. Oh, but I like this about the Greeks. Oh, but I like this about the, the Romans. Oh, I like this about the Greek gods. God says save marriage for sex. Well, I sort of like the Greeks approach on this with whoever you want. And so they began to compromise on practice, on policy, and on principle. And as they put these pieces together, they began to compromise everything. Now, what's shocking to me or amazing to me about Jesus as he began to think with both hands is he could always hold up truth and grace at the same time. And as he held up grace and truth, those people who were all about the law And not about grace. He would challenge them because they weren't thinking with both hands. You need more grace. Then he'd go over to the folks who were like, truth doesn't matter. It's not a big deal. And he'd challenge them and say, no, truth matters. You're not thinking with both hands. I'll give an example. Here's a chart of the four major characters Jesus dealt with. Uh, One more quick look. Uh, It was interesting that the Herodians had access to a lot of uh, modern equipment. It almost looks like you're in the 1800s. Here's one of the theaters that they built because they'd integrated Greek and Roman uh, theater into their uh, culture as well. So here we have the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees on a spectrum are all about truth. But their problem is that they would weigh policy and practice over the principle. 
So Jesus will constantly challenge them to weigh the principle over the policy and practice. And those of us on the Myers-Briggs who are J's, God will probably challenge you. You're probably really good at the J part and the not compromising part. But God might challenge you in your approach to be a little more gracious. Now, the Sadducees were the next step over. They didn't just weigh policy over principle. They actually weighed their position as, as uh, Sadducees. And they began to create policies and practices that violated the principle. I'll give you an example. They set up a monopoly where they owned all the sheep that were considered qualified for the temple. So if you were a Gentile in particular, and you came to the temple from long distances, you camped to have your sheep inspected, and the Pharisees would inspect it and say, mm, not really good enough. How much did you pay for that sheep? $500. <sighs> well, I know you, you came a long way. We'll give you 100 bucks for it. 100 bucks? Well, what are you going to do? Walk home? Okay. Well, how much for a, a, a sheep that does qualify? Mm, we'll sell you one of ours for 1000 what are you going to do? You're here. You came to sacrifice. Okay. So they take their sheep and go in. And then the unqualified sheep, they sell to the next guy for $1,000. This is why Jesus is so angry when he's overturning the money tables. He's not angry at business. He's not anti-economy. He's anti the folks who have put policies and principles in place that have violated the principle. He's so mad that they're turning away people, but especially Gentiles, who are trying to seek out the God of the Bible. So with these two groups, he's challenging them with truth and grace. Then we get to the Herodians. The Herodians compromised everything. Their practice was compromised, their policies were compromised, and their principles were compromised. They were as sensuous as anyone else in the culture. Their belief of right and wrong had been completely diluted. And Jesus will challenge them on truth and as long as they kept their power as Herodians, they didn't care who else in the kingdom got damaged. So Jesus challenges them with both grace and truth. And then we have the pagans. They sort of had a, anything goes on principle and anything goes on practice. As you look at Jesus' life, and he's able to think with both hands, here's the principles I've extrapolated from his life. On truth, he always weighed the principle over policy and practice. And when it came to grace, he always weighed love when confronting lawbreakers. Now, he didn't compromise the law. He didn't change the ethic, but he did say, I want to make sure I'm gracious in how I come across, that I'm kind. And I think we live in a culture today that's hungering for this. Because when we begin to speak about truth, everyone assumes that we're haters. When you talk about being loving and tolerant, people assume that you think everything goes. But a unique follower of Christ is someone who can do both well. We don't compromise on truth, and we don't compromise on love. Christians should be the most tolerant people in the world, because Jesus was the most tolerant. He took the very people pounding stakes into his hands and, and legs, and he looked at these people who hated him and said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. You do not get more tolerant than that. Yet Jesus was uncompromising about the Scriptures about God's word, about what he said. So for me, I'm always challenging. What does it look like for me to be like God, to balance both these things? Well, now it gets really cool. Because now he begins to demonstrate who he is. That he not only thinks with both hands, he is the character of two hands. He's God and man. Look at this. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. A great multitude from Galilee followed him. If you remember this pattern we've seen uh, of the magnetism of Jesus. And Jerusalem and Amemia... And beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, they came to him. 
he told his disciples a small boat would be kept ready for him because the multitude was so big it was going to crush him. Hey, give me a boat here. And as they get a boat, all of a sudden, some sick and demon-possessed come to him. He healed many so that as many as had afflictions, they pressed about to touch him. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. Now, I want you to look at these two phrases. We've looked at the phrase Son of God and Son of Man. These have very specific references to Old Testament pearls. If you read most commentaries, they're going to tell you Son of God points to his deity, Son of Man points to his humility. Maybe. But before you guess that, go back into the Old Testament and see if those phrases occur. Because the phrase Son of Man, that Jesus refers to himself as often, and Son of God, which is what the demons are calling him, come directly out of the book of Daniel. And they are such a claim to deity. They are such a claim to Jesus saying, I am the sent one from God, that it's mind-blowing. I'll give you the easy one first. The demons call him the son of God. This comes directly out of Daniel, chapter 3, verse 25. Another one of our pearls. If you remember, Nebuchadnezzar, through Shadrach, Meshach, as we used to say, to bed we go, into the fiery furnace. And they're watching them burn. And as he looks in, he says, I see not three, but four people in the fire. And the fourth one is like, the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. And there's the phrase. God himself has shown up in the fiery furnace to be with these three. And they will not be harmed. They will not smell of smoke. The God who is with you in the fire, the God who comes to us in our time of need. This is the phrase. In fact, this is called in theological circles a theophanies, which is an Old Testament occurrence of Jesus Christ. That is Jesus Christ, not just an angel, it's the Son of God in the fiery furnace. In fact, occasionally I'll drive my motorcycle here to work. I didn't do it this morning, but my uh, motorcycle tank, my dad painted on there the name of my motorcycle, because my dad makes us name all of our vehicles. He was a sixth grade teacher. (laughs) Sorry, Dad, if you're listening. So my uh, motorcycle is called the Fiery Furnace because God is always with you in the Fiery Furnace. Because I've I've been in uh, churches for all these years and I've had ER doctors who've told me every conceivable horror story about motorcycles or murder cycles or donor cycles, as they call them. And so it's a reminder to me as I'm driving that God is with me in the Fiery Furnace. But this phrase, the Son of God, is very specific. It's God in the Old Testament showing up with mankind. Back in chapter 2, though, as we looked at earlier, we have the phrase son of man. Son of man also comes directly out of Daniel. This is not just a reference to humanity. In fact, it's an incredible reference to his deity. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 to 14, Daniel says, I was watching the night visions, and behold, one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days. And they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people and all nations and all languages would serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. He shall not pass away. And his kingdom, the one that shall never be destroyed. See, the Ancient of Days was God. And Daniel says, God gave to the Son of Man a kingdom that would last all other kingdoms. So Jesus, when he says, I'm the Son of Man, it's not... A claim to humanity. It's a claim to say, you know that main prediction in Daniel? 
I'm him. You know the one that God is going to give all the kingdoms of the world to and people are going to serve from all tribe and nation? That's me. Which makes Jesus either an incredible narcissist or he is who he says he was. Because narcissists don't live with such servant, loving, kind, humble lives. And that's why Jesus not only thought with two hands, he lived with two hands. He could live with these bold claims to be God, and yet you would see love and patience and kindness as you interacted with him. In fact, here's a little tidbit. If you want to dig more into this, I did a whole series on Daniel called Living in the Lion's Den about seven years ago. The whole book of Daniel is a giant Hebrew chiasm, which means all the chapters rhyme with other chapters. If you read through Daniel, you're going to find that it's all out of order. You've got this is the king, then that's the king, and this is the king, this is the king. And they're out of order. And here's why. The book of Daniel is written in two different languages. The first chapters are written in the language of the Babylonians because he's predicting the pagan kings of Babylon, Greece, Rome, and Persia. So when he's speaking about the pagan kingdoms of the world, he, he actually writes in the Babylonian language. The second half of the book, he writes in the Hebrew language because it's all about the kingdom of Israel. And he rhymes it. Amazing. Chapter 2, he talks about these four kingdoms that are coming through the image of the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. That rhymes with chapter 7, where there are four kingdoms, all based on these wild beasts. In chapter 3, God rescues his people from the fiery furnace. That rhymes with chapter 6, where he rescues Daniel from the lion's den. Chapter 4 is about the king's prophecy. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is cut down like a tree. In chapter 5, Belshazzar's kingdom is cut down through the writing of the wall. See how the whole thing rhymes? Later on, as he talks about God's people in Israel, they also rhyme. I won't get into all those rhymes, except to say, here is the Hebrew kingdom, here are the Babylonian kingdoms, and right in the middle, the focal point of the entire book of Daniel is what? Daniel 7, 9 to 14, the Ancient of Days. He puts this here to say, the Son of Man has a kingdom that will outlast them all. The Ancient of Days will hand to the Son of Man the kingdom that will go on forever and ever and ever. So when Jesus says, hey, I'm the Son of Man, people don't go, huh. They go, did he just claim to be the Son of Man? They know exactly what that meant. And then you see Jesus demonstrate this, I'm God, but I'm man, in practical terms. Think about his disciples. This passage ends by looking at his disciples. He went up on the mountain, and he called to, the, to him those he wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach, to have power to heal sickness and to cast out demons. Simon, he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bagaris, which means son of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of an on, 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 on. Here's what's amazing about Jesus. Jesus is constantly thinking with both hands and he adapts his, his leadership to the different people on his team. On the one hand, he's got Matthew who works the Roman government who spent years using the power of the government to exploit and rob people. On the other hand, he's got a zealot who's very anti-government. Can you imagine the conversations going on in the twelve disciples? And yet Jesus will work with one and say, hey, we need some more grace over here. Hey, you need a little more truth over here. Hey, hey you, need a, you need some more truth on this area of your life. He'll turn to Peter. And he's such a shepherd, such a pastor. He'll say, Peter, we're not going to call you Simon anymore. I'm going to give you a nickname. Let's call you Rocky. Because I like your boldness. 
something about your boldness and your commitment to truth. I'm going to build my church on that. But you need some graciousness in how you come across. Let's talk about how we can do that. He turns to, to James and John. They're walking into a, a village one day, and they reject Jesus' claims. And John's ticked off. Can you believe these people? They can't handle truth, can they? He turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, should we call down fire and burn that place down? John, 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 John. John, I appreciate your loyalty. I appreciate your commitment to truth. I appreciate that. I really do. But John, you need some more grace in your life. Those people who rejected me, I love them. I love them. In fact, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to nickname you the son of thunder because you've got that boldness. But later on, John, when he's writing his gospel, won't call himself the son of thunder. He'll call himself the disciple Jesus loved. Because God loves us in our rejection. He loves us in our rebellion. He loves us in our anger. And wherever we are in the spectrum, Jesus comes to us and says, let me encourage you to weigh things the way God weighs them. And I think that's our takeaway. Am I weighing the things to which God gives weight? And if you have a tendency to not be a truth talker, God says you need to give weight to truth. And if you have a tendency to be a truth talker but there's not a lot of grace, you need to give weight to graciousness that people matter to God. What would it be like if all of us led our families, our companies, and our communities with that balance of grace and truth? Let's think with both hands. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the great example you are. Thank you for the challenge to each one of us and what it means to serve and love the way you loved. We ask that you go before us and your spirit indwells us and empowers us to live that life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for being here for String of Pearls. If you came prepared to give, there's some offering boxes on the way out. If you're new to Horizon, we'd love to say, hey, third door on your left is the hearth room. Thanks again.